This week on A Lively Experiment, proposed changes in Rhode Island's drug laws raise some eyebrows. And beach fees continue to get a lot of attention at the State House. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... For 30 years, A Lively Experiment has been helping us understand the most important issues facing Rhode Islanders. Hi, I'm John Hazen White, Jr., and I'm proud to be a sponsor of this great program. Joining us with their insights, Leanne Senek, National Committee Woman for the Rhode Island Republican Party. Ed Acorn, editorial page editor for the Providence Journal and former state representative, Mike Marcello. Welcome, everyone. I'm Jim Hummel. It is great to have you with us. Attorney General Peter Narona this week made good on a campaign promise to submit legislation that would reduce possession of most narcotic drugs, including heroin, fentanyl, and ecstasy, from a felony to a misdemeanor. That turned a few heads. What may have turned a few more heads? Providence Public Safety Commissioner and former state police Colonel Steve Perry and Providence Police Chief Hugh Clements are both on board with the proposal. Uh, Mike, let's begin with you. I don't know how much they did with drug laws. We want to make this as clear. This is for very small amounts. One ounce less. And the attorney general said this is clearly not going to exempt any dealers. They're looking at possession. But this is a long discussion we've had about jailing people who may have addiction. So I think the attorney general, as you said, kept his campaign promise, um, and he sees this as a public health crisis, and he doesn't see uh, these small amounts uh, of of possession uh, really uh, as a, as a critical resource where we should be putting resources for you know police departments to be arresting people, going through trials, and putting them in jail. So, um, you know, his proposal aligns himself with 20 other states in the country. Um, I think it's a great discussion to have, whether it goes goes all the way or you know partial way. But I think it's a step in the right direction. Well, I think the discussion is the big part of it, and we need to see, um, have more people, I think, weighing in on it. A lot of the other police chiefs around the state have not um, taken that opportunity to do so um, as of yet, and I'd like to hear their thoughts on it. But I think that keeping something like this in the in the drug courts is a better idea. These are still very dangerous drugs, and having them out in our community is a serious offense, and it needs to be taken seriously. Um, if there are better ways to do this, then we should be having that discussion, and I think that the people who are more involved in this should be weighing in on that, and that includes not just... Uh, two particular um, public safety officials. Right, but, and they the, tried to get a hold of a lot of people who right. were like, oh, we'll get back to you, we really can't get back right. to you, because this is, a, this is a significant line to cross in law enforcement, right, Ed? Right, you don't want to send a message that these dangerous drugs are fine, you know, society's just cool with it, uh, but you don't want to destroy people's lives by uh, giving them a drug charge for a very small uh, amount of uh, drugs. You want to uh, give people a chance to change their lives, turn it around, move forward, and get a job later on where they'll be. Otherwise, there'll be a uh, uh, drain on society for the rest of their lives. And you talked for years at the, le- at the legislature about how much corrections. That was always, the, not, that, not that everybody was on drug charges, but if you looked at the percentage of people and then probably the recidivism rate, it's a lot of money for the state it's to spend. It's a lot spend. of money to spend. It's a lot of money for the prosecution and whatnot. Again, and we're not saying that this is, uh, we're not decriminalizing. It's, it's still going to be a misdemeanor. It's just not going to be, a fe- it won't be a felony offense. So up to one year in prison, up to a $500 fine. And I think the, the, probably the ultimate goal is to get it through a, a drug court so that you can, you know, um, get the people to, you know, rehabilitation and stuff as a diversion what would you like to see in the hearings? What questions would you like to see answered? Well, I'd like to see um, the different um, ideas about 
helping these people, getting them into rehabilitation. I think that's the key to this, that um, people who are not dealing, but they're still part of that system. We're still trafficking drugs. You don't have a trafficking system without people who are making the purchases. So if we're looking at this from the end of the people who are addicted and making the purchases, we have to be looking at it as how do we help that? How do we stop that? How do we make people not addicted to these drugs? Where are the causes of this coming in? And how can we, as, as a society and as a government, put the right stops in place so that those things aren't happening anymore. Okay. And I think it's a, it's a discussion that has to be made through not just the with the police, but with people who are addictive specialties in this. And I'm sure that will happen when the uh, hearings come at the State House. Okay. A lot of talk the last couple of weeks about beach fees. We're getting close. Summer is around the corner, not quite here yet. Uh, what's interesting is the governor is proposing uh, a raising, trying to raise a million five to upgrade uh, beaches and campgrounds. Nobody can argue with that. Some have said uh, why does she not incorporate this in the budget? Late this week, Speaker Mattiello said he is not on board with this idea. Ed, you had a pretty strong editorial about this. Well, right. This is, you've got a $9.9 billion budget. You can't find money to maintain the beaches and that. I mean, I can understand for a state like New Hampshire, which doesn't have a state uh, And not many tax. beaches. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, but they don't have a state income tax, so they fee everything to death. But this state... The taxpayers already pay a huge amount. And this is the kind of thing that uh, I thought really dragged down Governor Chafee. He doubled the beach fees, and people, it did affect whether people went to the beach, especially if they were lower income. And I think Mattiello saying, hey, wait, people pay giant taxes. They should be able to go to the beach and enjoy Rhode Island's beautiful beaches. Well, it's a $2 increase, as proposed, from what I understand, from 6 to $8. It comes at the heel of a very comprehensive report that the Ron DEM, Janet Coit, the director of DEM, did, basically saying that we have great beaches, we have great parks, we don't do a very good job of upkeeping, we don't have enough money to do so, and so they're looking at other ways to generate some cash. Granted, $1.5 million is not a lot of money, but we have to look at the whole infrastructure of our park and beach system, and we don't want to get to the point where where we are with our roads, where they crumble, then we've got to start from scratch. Beaches are a tourist resource. They draw in a lot of people. Um, I don't know, $2 to me seems, doesn't seem like an awful lot of uh, increase. It's a cup of coffee at Dunkin' Donuts. Um, I, I get the broader principle, but we've got to start investing in our assets, and that was one of our assets is, is the beaches. And to keep them up, it, it's expensive to keep the pavilions up, the trash collection, to comb the beaches and whatnot. And I think that report that was done by, long overdue, by Janet Coit and the Department of uh, Environmental Management basically showed that we've got a great resources, but we've got to start protecting them and spending money to protect it. There was another good article that came out this week, too. It was about the Democrats nickel and diming Rhode Islanders, and I think that's what we're seeing with the beach fees. Um, Even if it's a small amount, it's still an increase on top of the burden that we already have of this almost $10 billion budget. You have departments that are scooped. We're taking 911 fees out of 911 rather than using that for what it's intended for. that money alone would be enough to cover this increase in the beach fees. The proposed raises that the governor wants to give to her staff, uh, a 3% raise for some high-paid staff members, those are the things that we should be looking at. We should be looking at where can we cut that so that we can afford to maintain our beaches rather than place an additional burden on the already overtaxed Rhode Islanders in this state. I think what may be hard to swallow, Mike, I agree with everything you said, but those are decisions, and I know the governor's trying to deal with decisions that have been made by past administrations. You know, they need eight more people at DEM because they've cut down. The problem is people look at $10 million more for, for taxpayer-funded tuition, want to sk- 
scale back a little bit on the car tax so we can do this. So people, when they see budgets going up by half a billion dollars over the last couple of years, they're like, why can't you squeeze out a million? Why can't you do that within your budget? And I think it's a fair argument, but I, I, do, I do think that we have to look at, you know, it's a user fee. Basically, you go to the beach, it's a user fee. It's, it's, it's $2. It's not as much as Governor Chafee um, proposed when he was there, which the legislature eventually did cut back. But I think $2, I think it has been raised in a couple of years. I don't think it's that, that great. The other thing is it's not going to be put in a restricted account, as far as I know. Well, that, that, it wouldn't and, have been. And that's, that, that's a fair criticism. It should be. If, if it's going to be designed to help, help, the, help the DEM, then it should be in a restricted You're getting the head shake from Ed. It's not just $2. It's people pay enormous taxes in Rhode Island. I mean, come on. You can, you can find the money in a $10 billion budget. Leanne, let's go back to what you said about the 3% increases. That's another thing the governor was looking for increases for um, her health director, uh, superintendent of the state police, public safety, and DLT. The 3% in and of itself, I don't think, I mean, you can argue that back and forth and, and to get people. The thing that interests me more about that is that she wants to be able to have control over that and not have to have the General Assembly check off on that. So as a concept, what do you think about that? As a concept, I think that it could be quite dangerous. Um, the reason we have that in there is to have a check and balance so that the governor can't just inflate those uh, salaries for people. And I think that that should stay in the hands of the general assembly. I think it's an important check and balance. But it, you also have to have some autonomy in the governor's office. If they had a line item veto, for instance, that would be more effective than being able to control people's salaries, I think. What do you think about the salary issue? Uh I think it's a minor issue. I think she should be able to uh, pay people a reasonable amount um, within her budget again. You know, she might have to make some decisions to not have uh, as many FTEs. Uh, a couple of PR people could that. go, right, Ed? There you go. What, what, so the concept, and this is a general assembly, this is kind of a separation of powers type thing, right? Yeah, so um, it is a good check. I agree uh, with Leanne. But here's the other issue. A, a good check can also be used as a good um, uh, hammer as well because now you get the legislature involved in improving raises. It could be a bargaining chip for something else down, down the line. I'll approve your director's raises, but you've got to do the X, Y, and Z. So, you know, it, it cuts both ways. But the transparency part of it is excellent, but it, it can be used as a... Um, as a bargaining chip for what, something else. What about this argument they say, well, we can't attract people at that price? We don't seem to be lacking for candidates who want to get into this job. Do you think? No, and I think into these that jobs. there are other benefits. I mean, if we didn't have such a high tax burden on this state, that's a benefit to draw people to our state. If we're looking at the state as a whole and how we bring people in, it's not just a salary-based thing. It's a, it's a way of life here in Rhode Island, and we do have a beautiful state, and maybe if we didn't have those extra few dollars going to those beach fees, those people would have more of an incentive to actually relocate to the state um, and, and to take those jobs. I think all the salaries that were proposed are in line with other New England states, so we're not, we're not... Yeah, it's not out of I mean, the only one who's really pulling down is like north of 200 is Stefan Pryor, right. but that, yeah, they've always had that argument with, remember right. the old EDC? Sure. Remember that director was here for a cup of coffee, didn't even come because there was such a half a million dollars or a quarter of a million dollars, right? Right. So we shall see. All right. Moving to education, Providence School uh, Superintendent Chris Marr uh, announced that he'd be leaving after four years. Look, when you're in this job, I'm sure you age in dog years. So it probably seems like 30 years to him. But, Ed, you've talked an awful lot about in the wake of RICAS. We think Ed, uh, Commissioner, the Ed Commissioner, Ken Wagner, might be going out. These are two big positions that are right. going to be open. And then you ask Who's going to want to fill these positions? Right. Well, it's been a revolving door. It's quite amazing. There's been um, four uh, different ones since 2008, and now there's going to be a fifth. Uh, you can't 
run the schools with that kind of turnover. You've got to have more stability. And I think it shows a, a glaring problem with the whole education system. We are just not doing the job. We are not allowing leaders to lead. We are putting uh, political and special interests ahead of the students. And I think it just exposes the whole mess. And when you look at those RICAST numbers for Providence, they're terrible. 10% of the kids were proficient in math, 14% in English. It's just abysmal. They have no future. We're not doing any public education kid in the system any good without addressing these larger problems. You're not going to move around forward unless you fix the educational system in Providence, in Woonsocket, Central Falls, Situate. I mean, the, the, across the board, the scores were terrible, and I think it really needs to have almost a... Uh, a special committee or a special task force to look at how we're going to solve these problems. We need everybody on board on this. We need the teachers' unions. We need the, the, the principals. We need the superintendents. But th- this is a problem that needs to be fixed. And we, you cannot have a good school system with that much turnover. And I think, you know, his, his public comments, at least from the education commissioner, there's just too much bureaucracy. A superintendent cannot do their job to get what they need to get these kids over the line. And we're failing a whole, whole generation of kids, which is sad. Yeah, I think that's telling, that there's too much bureaucracy, and that should kind of be the theme for this week is broken systems. Everything that we've talked about so far is government not working well for the people of our state, and that's what we should be looking at, particularly in the education system. When we see the scores, the the RICAS scores, and how people have kind of forgotten about that already, I'm glad that you are bringing that back to the forefront because it's something that's going to affect generations from now. Um, If we're not educating our children now, what is our future in our state? So we need to be looking at this seriously, and it needs to be constantly on the forefront, on the front burner, and people talking about it and talking about bringing the education professionals. But we also have to include the parents in in those things, too, and making sure that they're on board with what's going on with their kids and they're active participants in their child's education. I thought Ken Wagner made some very uh, intelligent comments this week about this, saying the system's not set up for the students, the parents, and the teachers. It's set up for special, in- it's set up for the bureaucracy and for a number of political considerations. We have to change that. And it's too bad uh, he didn't do anything about it. As, uh, now what's the deal? He's, I'm leaving, but, I mean, is he waiting till he gets his next job and just pay- collecting a paycheck? I mean, he said, I'm going to eventually leave, and then he's still here, right? Right, You right. can't get to the next step before he leaves, right? He should leave. We need to make big changes in the state. You know, the other thing we should note is the Providence Superintendent, uh, Chris Marr, uh, Across the board, everybody thought that he was doing a good job. And one of the reasons he's stepping back, if you don't know the story, is he's got kids going into middle school and high school, and it's just a draining job. And people talked about him always being at the games and everything else. So kudos to him. But there's only so much you can do. And in this job, Mike, four years is a very long time because you've seen that they started going over Susan Lucy, Tom, remember Tom Brady, the other Tom Brady, uh, Donnie Evans. And I'm like, wow, that's been only over the last decade. And look what happened with, you know, Commissioner Gist. I mean, she, she was a reform person. She was a change agent. And she ran into a lot of resistance, not only from the teachers' union, but frankly from the legislature. And, you know, I, 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 one thing that I agree with her, the most thing to, for success of a student is a good teacher in the classroom. You can't beat that. And, you know, she was really putting through um, evaluation periods for teachers, and they had to be evaluated every year. Then, the, then we got the legislature, oh, no, only, only excellent teachers. Uh, we, we can give, give, give them a review over three years. If you're below excellent, then we get a review. I mean, 
mean, we're just so much into this bureaucracy, into the into the getting into a, uh, an area where I don't think the legislature belonged. But I, I think we have a crisis on a statewide basis, and I would hope that the governor and whoever her new commissioner will be in the future um, really starts to focus on this. And I think the journal's been doing an excellent job of just you know. But it's also with the parents. I mean, the parents just can't take these scores and, and just okay, well, I get these scores, so now what? I mean, they need to be start pushing their local school committees, you know, their local town councils, uh, and and their legislatures to. But if you like me, I mean, you live in a community, you pay for relatively high taxes, you have faith in your government. I mean, I don't have a lot of time, maybe I would if my schools were worse, but to be going and pushing people, I expect them to be able to do the job because we're paying good money, right? You do, but that's not necessarily the case. And I think that you have you have extremes with parents, too. You have parents who are very, very involved with their children. Um, you know, those parents on the sidelines that are yelling at their kids at sporting events. But then you have the ones that aren't really able to pay attention to that, and, and that's why those places are supposed to have those safety nets in place for those children. I mean, I'll just tell you what's happening in Situa. We have, uh, we have a pretty much like uh, a brain drain going on. We, we had almost 50% of our 8th grade, cl- grade class will go to ninth grade, going to a diff- different public school. They're going to Ponagansett because they have perceived as having better uh, career and technical education programs. They so, have, we, so they have the option they to have the option that? to do and it. And would pay for that? Or? Yeah, we, the money follows the kids, so we lose about $1.4 million dollars. Of, of revenue because those wow. that so you know people are leaving people are voting with their feet and they're going to different different districts so there are parents who are involved and frankly from a perspective on situate it's that's a hard number to to lose at 1.4 million dollars of, of revenue because we still have schools to you know fund and heat to put on and electric so um there 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 are people are a call to action then to right. fix that problem. absolutely and that's what it is really for everybody I, oh, throughout the entire system it's a call to action you do need to get involved you can't just let this sit back and happen to our children and, and you want your you want your system to be attractive enough that people don't want to live. Exactly. Right? Right. Exactly. All right. Uh, would you support public financing for legislative races? We do it now on uh, for others. Mike, I want to start with you on this. Uh, uh, Senator Sheehan came out with a proposal, and there's a lot of nuance to it, but basically he's saying we kind of need to level the field, and I don't know what the price tag would be. John Marion from Common Cause says, well, the price you know, of not doing it is even more. What do you think about the concept? Of I think the concept is excellent. I think Rep. Jello, when I was in the legislature, had similar legislation there. I think it's a good concept. Whether there's an appetite for that in the public right now, probably not when you're raising beach fees and whatnot to fund legislative candidates. But you need a competitive system. And, you know, even, you know, I, I ran, I was up there for eight years. I spend like $20,000 every time that I ran. That's a lot of money for people to have to raise in a, on a, on a, a district that represents 14,000 people. And again, but the most important thing for competitive races is a stronger Republican Party that would, you know, that can, can fund candidates, uh, field candidates, and help candidates. Until you have a strong two-party system, um, you're not going to get the dramatic change that we need in Rhode Island. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. You can't tax your way out of the uncompetitive races we have. You've got to uh, have a two-party system. You've got to revitalize the Republican Party. And you and I thought getting rid of the master lever was a big change. That could be uh, put to much greater use by the opposing party, and they just their game isn't good enough. It doesn't make a difference if you if you have a no master level with that's no right. candidates running. That's right. That's you know. That's and right. I always said you know the best the best thing for good government is to have an <laughs> opponent. I didn't like having opponents, but boy, it made me a better candidate and a better rep. What would this do for the Republican Party if you if, in terms of uh, in attracting terms of candidates? Attracting candidates, I think it would assist in attracting candidates for the party because there's always that burden that people have to fundraise, and it's a difficult burden for most people to deal with. Um, so initially, I think that it would be good, and it would help to bring some balance to that. And it's very important that we do have people running. You see the, the, the campaign promises that are made because they have an opponent. We have lower 
car taxes because Steve Rice ran against Speaker Mattiello. That wouldn't have happened if he didn't have that opponent. So it's always important that we have people who are credible candidates, and as a party, we do need to do a better job of doing that, and that will start with fundraising. And I think that that, that is key to revitalizing the party, so this would be an actual assist to get that started if people are actually in favor of it. And I, I do think it's a good idea because you have all those special interests that get involved in these small races, and it's very easy for those to become overpowered easily. And there's a power with the incumbency as well that comes with that. There's, I think, like 98% of incumbent candidates are reelected, even when they do have an opponent um, since, since the 60s. So it's, it's a very difficult system to go up against, and I think that would help to level that playing field. I also think we should have kind of limits on what we're spending on these races. It's, it's crazy to have to spend that much money to, for a part-time legislative position. And those are the things you might have to get at. around the Supreme Court for but, that. But, I, I but you're not going to, I mean, again, you know, the, the people are so cynical, they're not going to want to spend money. The taxpayers are not going to spend money to fund right. legislative races. And, that, and it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an education process, and I think this is a good, good start, but we're not going to get, we're not going to see this bill for a very long time. Okay, let's go to uh, outrageous. Ed, what do you have today? Well, I, this is a uh, both a kudo and an outrage. A kudo to Tim White of Channel 12, who did uh, extensive investigations into the uh, the uh, 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 injured on duty with the sheriffs, and I think that's a problem that has to be addressed. And I'm kind of outraged at the sheriffs for being so. Uh, antagonistic toward the public. Some about people this. have been out eight or eleven years, and they didn't yes. want to give them the names of people who were being paid That's with right. taxpayer money. Right? That's right. And you and you have uh, cases where the courts can't even go into session because there aren't enough sheriffs around. This is ridiculous. And I, I hope that the new state police uh, superintendent. Mr. Manny comes in there and takes a hard look at this uh, situation. Okay, I think yeah. he's going to need some statutory fixes, though. That's that's a problem, right? Yeah. You, 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 when you're when you're when you're when you try to get the disability pension, you're denied, and, and you're told you can can or cannot go back to work. Then you're kind of stuck in this no man's land. And there's right. really every every city in town has it. When Saka had it when I was there, um, and, and it's tax solicitor. free. So it's what's the incentive exactly. to go back? Right. right. Leanne, what do you have for an outrage? My outrage is the vote by the CRMC to approve a mitigation fund for Vineyard Wind um, to the fishing industry. And the way that this happened, there was not enough time for public comment. Public comment was actually shut down um, before this was approved. And it is a, a, a decision that's going to cripple the calamari industry in our state, which is a, a large part of our economy. And hundreds of millions of dollars in this industry are at stake. And they were able to vote on a mitigation fund of, I think it's $12 million, um, $4 million of which will be administered by Vineyard Wind. So it won't actually go to the fishermen who will be losing money with this project. And there's so much more research that needs to be done as far as the impact of this wind farm on our coastal area and on the fishing industry in particular, that um, they're fast-tracking this. And it's not a good thing. And I think um, we really need to have some people shedding a light on that. I'd like to, I'd love to see you do a Hummel report. <laughs> there are, I get pictures all the time. Do, do we have any reaction from Representative Mac? about the calamari effects? Was that... Uh... Um, we have not, but they do have a actual um, a board now that's meeting as part of the General Assembly. They, they put together an advisory board on windmills, and I'd like to see their response to this. That yeah. hasn't, it just happened recently, so like in the past two days, so waiting to see what comes out of there. Right, and wind is not going away, as we know. So my outrage is very local. So Situate is one of the only communities in the state, the only community in the state that doesn't have a home rule charter. And in June of this year, they elected a home rule charter commission to start drafting one, which I think was a great idea. Um, Were you on that commission? I was not on the commission. I was on a different commission. But um, so they started to uh, actually draft a document, and they started using a document, what they call a source document, in December. 
uh, I went to one of the meetings uh, a couple weeks ago and I asked for a copy of that source document that the whole committee is using and you know marking up as they go along and talking about the, the, the former government. And the chairwoman of the committee would not release that document. I, I think it's outrageous that we're talking about a governing document. The home rule process is supposed to be open, Transparent. I mean, did they use kind of like it's a work product attorney no, well, type it, thing, or well, what did she say? The, the, basically, the law says that if any any public document used by a public body at a public meeting is a public record, and they just won't release it. It's and what, what did she give you a reason no, for? Just no? to, that's a, that's the way I'm going to run the thing, the, run, run the run, run this. I'm the chairman. Very first. Well, that's transparency. Yeah, huh? exactly. Wow, that All is right. outrageous. Outrageous. Yep. Maybe that could be an editorial in the Providence Journal. <laughs> She's pitching humble reports, and I'm pitching uh, I'm pitching editorials. All right, we have uh, about uh, four minutes left. Um, the Michael Cohen hearings. I was none of these people would make good reporters. Let me tell you the the, uh, the every the questions were so predictable. I wonder. Look, it is what it is. What he said, you know, kind of went Republican Democrat. I wonder for the long run whether you think this is going to have any traction or whether okay we do it and then we move on. Um, is it a blip in time? What, what was your thought about the hearings? Um, I think it's going to be coming back in the 2020 election. I think you'll see sound bites in ads. Um, I think that's basically what it was set up for, so that you can for ha- all of the local senators and reps, <laughs> right? For the local senators, but for people who are going to try and <clears throat> again, we saw in the last election how Trump was used against local Republicans in this race, and I think that that will go towards that, and and on the national level too. It, the, the real time to judge this will be in 2020 at the ballot box and we'll see how much of a repercussion it has but the whole thing was just kind of like a kabuki theater at this point some of the stuff that was put out there the questions that were asked on it was just it was crazy and you just have this person who actually is going to prison for lying to congress and he's testifying before congress again so his credibility is definitely an issue but the fact that he was allowed to just go up there and and say these things that were just conjecture he didn't have proof to back up a lot of the the claims that he made it is kind of telling except that those checks the checks are, are an issue that would need to be ironed out but i think that the, the other things that he said there was no backing any of that up yeah i thought i thought it was a lot of white noise most of the public is sort of like oh god there they go again I don't think it it benefited Democrats very much. I thought the timing of it was unfortunate with uh, the president out, out in, in Hanoi trying to obtain peace on that in the Korean Peninsula. So and they could have easily postponed they it. They could right? have. And they but didn't they want, didn't want to do the president want, any favors. They wanted to have that split screen uh, of uh, focusing. In fact, some didn't even cut away from the Cohen thing for the, for the Vietnam uh, discussions. So it's... Uh, but I, I think what Cohen said was, oh, there's no collusion, essentially. He had no evidence of any collusion, so it didn't really help on that that score. And, uh, you know, he has a lot of uh, problems with credibility. Now he's, a, he's able to get the, sit there and denounce the president. Do you think the president's going to get primaried? I, yeah, I believe... Um... I know Bill Weld well, is well, talking about it, but yeah. I mean, somebody, I mean about it. anybody else do you see or... I mean, Bill Welch, formidable, but I don't I think, think John Kasich, John Kasich is definitely yeah, thinking absolutely. about it, um, just from the tone. But I, I don't think it's going to be a credible primary. Right. I just think that um, we didn't learn very much. Um, but I, I reject this notion that once you're a liar, you're always a liar. Uh, you know, he obviously, I think he, he came across as a wounded person. And how he was in the Trump fold for all those years. And I think that I think his testimony was honest as to how Trump operates. And, I, and it's no surprise to the American people, though, because Trump was like this when he ran the campaign and he still got elected. So, you know, this this whole idea that, oh, we're so sh- shocked at this behavior. 
we knew that about this kind of behavior. That we knew about the the allegations that he stiffed, you know, contractors and whatnot. And and people elected him anyway. So if this helps, I don't know. But um, I just reject the notion that. If you lied once, you're going to be a liar for the rest of your life. I think he, he saw the light, and I think he realizes now he ruined his reputation, basically, for a man, for, the, for a man that he worked for for 20 years, and now he wants to try to set the record straight, and I admire him for that. Um, he's going to pay the price. He's going to prison for three years. Right. All right, folks, that is all the time we have. We appreciate you joining us. Leanne, good to see you again, Ed and Mike. And uh, thank you for uh, watching us. Hey, listen, if you don't catch Lively, we hope you watch us on Friday or Sunday. But if you don't, we post every one of our programs on YouTube. You can read all about what's coming up on Facebook. And if you want to listen to us in the car or on the move, go to your favorite podcast because we are now podcasting all of these shows. Any number of ways to see Lively. Hope you have a good weekend and join us back here next week as a Lively Experiment continues. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by For 30 years, A Lively Experiment has been helping us understand the most important issues facing Rhode Islanders. Hi, I'm John Hazen White, Jr., and I'm proud to be a sponsor of this great program. 